Welcome back to Discourse by the Saint, a student-led bi-weekly podcast. Here at Discourse, we promote all things discussion, covering everything from university life to national and international news stories. This week, we'll be taking a look at issues in the UK, US and Canada, which all link rather nicely to ideas about personal freedom versus the power of individual states or legal bodies. So certainly some points of discussion to be had. Just before we get going, I'd like to emphasise that, as always on this podcast, the views expressed by my guests and I are our own and do not reflect those of the saint. So my guests this week are Hannah Shirley and Sophia Palou. Hannah is a fourth year IR and econ student and member of Solidarity. It's great to have you with us this morning. Would you be able to kick things off with a bit of light controversy? Yeah, sure. Um, so my controversial but banal opinion um, for today is, well, it's only really half banal because you'll probably gauge how I feel about the monarchy from it, but I don't think the term queen should be used as a compliment. So Rosie isn't a queen for running this podcast <laughs> so successfully. Instead, she's a prime minister for doing so because the queen is fed her title or like was fed her title on a silver spoon. She didn't earn it. Um, whereas a prime minister has to kind of campaign and is elected based on merit. And obviously you put a lot of hard work into this podcast. <laughs> so slay PM. Thanks, Hannah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I didn't pay her to say that. Um, what's also interesting, though, is that the term prime minister actually started off as a pejorative term. Uh, my other guest, Sophia, is a third year IR and philosophy student and member of Lumsden Society. As if that wasn't enough to spark some controversy, would you be able to share something else with us to get the discussion going? I play sports myself. I play basketball here at St. Andrews, but I believe that modern day sports and the industry of athletics is modern day gladiatorship. And I think people are sold and traded for their bodies. An optimistic take. <laughs> no, I love it. Um, so as I say, all of our issues link together rather nicely this week. Uh, but just to get him out of the way, really, let's kick off with your story, Hannah, which explores the rather sticky legislative issues surrounding Trump's election campaign. Okay, so yeah, the story I wanted to discuss today was um, the 14th Amendment and how it's being invoked by those in the US who don't believe Trump should be able to run for the presidency next year. So I believe it's Article 3 of the 14th Amendment. Um, and to quote it, um, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. So I may be biased, but it sounds to me that Trump running for the presidency would be unconstitutional given his support for the January 6th movement. Um, and my take is that, you know, although according to the letter of the law, Trump should be barred from running. I'm quite uncomfortable with the precedent this sets regarding resistance being punished. So in terms of causes I'm more sympathetic towards, I think I disagree with this. So think of a US climate activist or Black Lives Matter activist running for the presidency 
and having protests that they've engaged in or supported being deemed rebellion or insurrection um, and then being barred from running for the presidency, um, I think that would be wrong, um, particularly since we need, I think, people with more um, kind of knowledge of climate issues in government as well. Um, and this is also kind of topical um, when we look at the UK context and the fact that many Extinction Rebellion protesters are in a similar position to Trump, where they're being barred from jobs they desire because they've got criminal records owing to um, acts of protest that have resulted in imprisonment. Um, and we have the 2023 Public Order Act to thank for the fact that even though lots of these acts are non-violent, um, people are still getting criminal records from committing them. So I just want to know what you guys think. Is this a violation of free speech? And where do we draw the line? When should we criminalise um, slash kind of penalise protest? Yeah, no, thank you for bringing it up because I think it's such an interesting and complex issue because obviously on the one hand, I think the common sense argument is that Trump went against the 14th Amendment. I think really you know, he was very much involved in the storming of the Capitol. Um, he actively supported it and then, you know, didn't tell people to stop. But at the same time, I think it's incredibly difficult to sort of make the legal parameters for what constitutes uh, insurrection. And if we're going to do it on, you know, the very vague basis that Trump wasn't actually even involved directly in the storming of the Capitol, it does set quite a dangerous precedent for future uh, riots that any political leader might show support for and that then they might be barred from office. Um, so I do think that that means that it's not going to be successful in barring him from office. And actually already I know that in Michigan and New Hampshire, it has been turned out of the courts for that reason um, and was actually described by the New Hampshire Congress as demonstrating a bit of a Soviet style approach because effectively people have just mined through just the darker elements of the constitution that people don't really know all that much about uh, to try and find any reason to bar him from office which although is sort of admirable is also setting quite a dangerous precedent as you say. Um, as the Extinction Rebellion I think it's yeah it's so interesting because again it's very easy when you align personally with a cause to have sympathy, but you can just see where, um, you know, that could become very problematic. And obviously people with a criminal record can sometimes, you know, present a danger to society. Those rules are there for a reason and it's difficult to draw the legal boundary about when something becomes violent or a threat to life. The only thing that I'd add is, I wonder if we can draw maybe a bit of a distinction between, um, you know, climate activists and BLM and, and other, activists who are rallying around a cause rather than January 6th, which was rallying around the leadership turnover and was rallying around um, the loss of their leader in power. Um, it seems more akin to a coup. Um, and I think that's kind of what they were talking about in general mm -hmm. media. So when we're talking about the precedent and um, of it and whether it could happen again, I think there is a difference between that type of, of yeah. protest or activism, if we want to call it. No, I definitely agree. And particularly because it relates so much to the whole basis of the Constitution in the first place, which was to try and, you know, reconstruct and bring America back together after the Confederacy. Um, and obviously, 
Trump and the storming of the Capitol had a very direct alignment with that cause. So it did undermine the Constitution and had a very political angle in a way that Extinction Rebellion is maybe more existential rather than political directly. I don't know what you think, Hannah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you talk about kind of, I guess, the Civil War and the original context of this, because this was, this amendment was originally used, or at least the third article, to take out political opponents and prevent Confederates from joining the government. So yeah, I do think it's a very backward um, article of the Constitution. But at what point can you kind of dismiss parts of the Constitution and accept others? Like, which other amendments does this leave open to then kind Mm. of dismissing because they're backward? Um, Because obviously the Constitution was written in a certain historical context. It definitely, it raises questions about the Constitution more generally because so many articles like this one haven't ever been legally defined. So it means that it is quite easy for people to effectively mine up bits of legislation, interpret them on their own terms. Um, I know that this whole controversy was sparked because it was two legal scholars um, who define themselves as originalists who were basically trying to look actively for a reason why Trump wouldn't be able to come to office. And you can see there that, you know, there is a bit of a problem in the Constitution and it'll be interesting to see how uh, that develops and whether any more controversies come as a result of it. Um, Yeah, and just on the issue of, I'd quite like to discuss where you guys would kind of draw the line between protests being kind of worthy of a criminal sentence and where they aren't. Do you think the threshold is violence or... I yeah I personally think that's kind of an inappropriate threshold because um, I think often the pretext for a protest can also be um, a valid reason for imprisoning someone say it was a neo-nazi march for example Um, where do you think we should kind of start penalizing people for participating in um, protest Yeah, and I do think it's interesting because obviously over the past few years, we've seen so many different kinds of protests. You know, we've seen people blocking roads so that people can't get to work. We've seen people destroying paintings. And then we've seen people at the more violent end of the scale. And I'm not sure whether it's that easy to just combine every form of protest under a single category. And I think that's why it's so difficult to legislate because it's so nuanced between what the intentions are. As you say, sometimes the intentions are enough of a thing to be, um, you know, persecuted for. Uh, And I think it is very difficult to distinguish between personal ethics and, you know, objective fact. As events in Gaza and Israel continue to unfold, I want to take a moment at the start of this podcast to reiterate that while we recognise the significance of the conflict, we will not be discussing the issue at discourse. Personally, I simply don't feel equipped to add anything meaningful to the discussion, but I would recommend heading over to Tortoise or The Economist if you'd like to educate yourselves more. I'd also like to raise a brief trigger warning about the contents of this episode, as we will go on to discuss the details of some crimes which listeners may find distressing. So closer to home, but nonetheless sticking with the American theme, my story this week is that as of the 21st of November, NHS England has signed a £330 million seven-year patient data management contract with the US spy tech firm Palantir. 
so this deal is the biggest in NHS history and is Sunak's answer to the long wait times and effectively disconnected care that plague our health service. Essentially, they plan to form a federated data platform, which will combine existing data sets like staff rosters, waiting lists and health records, but will not include patients' GP data. So far, so good, you might be thinking, but there are a few issues of contention to address here. First off, NHS staff and medical trade unions have voiced concerns about the ability for Palantir to handle such complex data. The firm is tiny compared to the likes of Google and Amazon, and people are concerned about putting their trust in a single private company to perform critical functions. Um, equally, Palantir has fairly shaky ethical credentials and has actually earned the title of the most evil company in the world. Its co-founder and chair, Peter Thiel, is a Trump donor who, when speaking at the Oxford Union last year, claimed that public affection for the NHS was basically a form of Stockholm syndrome. Uh, the company has also been involved in the morally dubious data handling relating to the US Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, which, according to human rights activists, abuses poor people, migrants, and ethnic minorities. At a logistical level, concerns have also been raised because despite being assured originally that they would be able to opt out of the scheme, this is no longer the case for patients. Um, while data will be anonymized, there's an argument to say that medical data can always be re-identified. And while the data will supposedly not be monetized, there are no cast iron guarantees from Palantir on this issue. The effectiveness of the scheme is also questionable, given that only eight of the 36 pilot schemes were willing to say that the platform provided any actual benefit. Uh, so with all this in mind, I guess I'll kick things off by asking whether you guys think Palantir is up to the task. And I'm also keen to hear your thoughts on whether you think the opinions of individual company members like Thiel can ever be distanced from those of an organisation in general. So I do think that, obviously, when reading about this issue, um, Palantir does have a bad reputation because it has aided US immigration enforcement agencies um, but I think that very much has to do with the fact that they were hired to do a certain job and I think that the US government is at fault ethically for what it chooses to do with the databases that Palantir creates um, so in as far insofar as we trust our government to use our data for benign purposes I don't object on an ethical basis um, but I do think that there are serious issues with, as you were saying, the pilot schemes um, have shown a severe lack of efficacy. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes me really question kind of what was behind that contract being given to Palantir and why they were identified as the best company for the job. And, you know, I'm kind of predicting maybe a... I don't know, a corruption scandal to emerge from this, potentially? Well, it's interesting because we put um, we put our trust in our government, yes, and so the question is, is by extension, do we put our trust in the people or the, the companies that our government puts their trust into? You know, nobody elected um, Palantir. And um, I was just doing a bit of research, too, and it said in 21, um, the government was sued over failure to consult the public before awarding a separate $23 million contract. So already they have failure to consult the public. And then now, with this e even larger deal, to have that lack of an opt-out scheme um, and without the consultation, it is, I guess, very worrying. To yeah, I think it sets a really dangerous precedent that 
they really tried to go under the radar and just change this legislation without people almost realizing. And then people picked up on it and they sort of kind of apologized, but basically said, well, like it's the only way that it's going to function. So you have to, there's no choice. Um, but I have also heard that um, even though the NHS can implement this scheme, individual hospitals can still decide not to use it, which slightly undermines the whole opt-out thing anyway. So actually whether the federated data platform would ever be feasible because whether hospitals would ever be willing to take it up is under question. Um, and I did think it was interesting that, I mean, you would think that such a massive deal, you know, the biggest in NHS history, might have seen a huge rise in the stock price of Palantir, but Palantir's stock price actually dropped on the day that it was announced, which suggests that people don't really see a future for the deal, which is quite interesting in itself. What you guys are saying about accountability is really interesting. Um, I think that, yeah, all these changes were made under the radar, and, you know, I feel like the proper procedure would have been kind of a bill going through Parliament. Um, so, yeah, it feels like there is a real lack of democratic mandate for this. But on a personal level, I mean, I'm sure that many private corporations are already aware of my health data, given um, my use of kind of search engines and social media. And that's an issue in itself. And there isn't really an opt out of that as such. But I don't really think that this is that consequential, given that my data is very much already out there. Yeah, I really agree with that. And I do think it's so interesting that people are very willing to buy into, you know, the Apple iPhone, putting things on the iCloud, going on meta platforms like Instagram and Facebook and sharing so much data. And they, I think a lot of people don't even really think about it. But when it's made blatant to them in this context, people really morally object to the fact that their data is being shared. Um, and as they have said, you know, allegedly it won't even include your GP data. So, yeah, I think there definitely is an argument to say, you know, maybe it isn't such a big deal that our data is being shared after all. Um, but what I do think is interesting is that um, I'm just not sure whether NHS data will ever be able to be truly centralised and streamlined because people aren't willing to show that trust. And, you know, as I say, the trade unions and um, health boards have already spoken out against the scheme. And I think a lot of hospitals probably won't take it up and in a way you could say that that was a bit of a shame because um, we all know how long wait times are and how poor patient care can be purely because of administrative issues. Yeah I was going to say kind of on uh, we've been talking on maybe more of a theoretical and moral standpoint but kind of bring it back down to the pragmatic which is what you've started to do is um, so on the one hand there's actually been a lot of instances of different various governments um, outsourcing um, tasks, I guess is the best way to say it, to different private firms and uh, consulting firms. Outsourcing to uh, private firms and consulting firms just because uh, these firms actually have the specialization, the know-how, and um, the capacity to do it, um, which the government doesn't. So on one hand, it might be more pragmatic and a better way of making the healthcare system a bit more efficient. Um, but then, on the other hand, on a pragmatic side, um, a lot of these data firms are uh, subject to like data ransom. So I don't, I don't know the ability of this of Palantir on how to handle that, but that's also something very worrisome. 
Yeah, I mean, I know that Palantir did also deal with um, COVID data during the pandemic in the UK and presumably did a good job um, <laughs> because they've been chosen again. But I mean, by all accounts, there was a fair amount of competition for this contract. You know, it's a massive contract. Um, so I, I suppose that does inspire a degree of hope that maybe they did manage to show that they have really good credentials in that regard. Um, but equally, because they're such a small business and they're involved in such sort of risky business ventures, um, I know that Thiel also has backed cryptocurrencies, which maybe doesn't show, you know, the most steady minded business approach. Um, it does maybe seem a bit reckless from the NHS. And I wonder whether this really is just quite a last ditch attempt to solve an issue that's really crippling the organization rather than, you know, a thought through reasonable approach exactly will this database shorten waiting times and make the nhs more effective so i think they're planning on combining data from all hospitals across the country because currently there is not a single database like we say that we have the national health service but that's sort of a misnomer in a way we have lots of different hospitals that all operate under the guise of the national health service so they would basically centralize all the staff rosters all the waiting lists all the health records from all these different hospitals so that if you were waiting for care you would be able to access it more quickly because maybe you could be directed somewhere that's not you know your local practice but somewhere that's close by is my understanding um i think also it would um yeah, aim to make elective care better for people. So um, you could sort of schedule in advance rather than just be put on waiting lists and then have to go on a specified date. But I mean, again, I think this is all quite speculative and actually, I mean, ev everything around this deal seems to have been quite speculative, even the amount that it was going to cost. Like literally on the day, it went down from being 480 million pounds to 330 million pounds, which is quite significant. So I think it's fair to say that everything's slightly hanging in the balance. I know there has been talk that there might be uh, legal objections to the entire process. So yeah, I, I guess we'll have to see. I wonder if um, <clears throat> that's also why they added that clause of the no opt-out, um, mm -hmm. just because if it is this information sharing, this, this federal database, you need to have everybody to opt in for it to be effective, right? Yeah, yeah and as we've said, there is just such a widespread social like, fear of sharing data, even when we do so on such a regular basis on data platforms. Yeah, definitely. And um, based on what you were saying about kind of the speculative um, increased or like reduced waiting times, I do think that we're, given that this is so controversial and that people, you know, will opt out and it probably won't happen. I think that we need to be looking at other ways to reduce waiting times and improve the NHS. And I think a lot of that has to do with staffing. So I think we're looking at the wrong area here. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that technology definitely could be the answer, but I think it is, you know, it comes down to the question of whether people are willing to put their trust into something because um, ultimately you know you can see that if everything was centralized in this way it could potentially be beneficial so yeah I suppose lots of things to think about there so we're going to finish off with something that to my mind at least is a bit lower profile than the other issues that we've been been discussing 
but I think it relates really well to wider issues around legal rights and legislation bias in general. Um, so Sophia, would you be able to tell us a bit more about your story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my story concerns a recent decision by Canada's Supreme Court. Maybe that's why it's more low profile. <laughs> um, no, and it came, it concerns this idea of automatism. And um, automatism is basically when you are being convicted of a violent crime, you need to have two things. You need to have actus reus and mens rea, which is a guilty mind and a guilty action. So in this example, say I punch Rosie. Um, I wanted to punch Rosie, I had a guilty mind, and then I did the action of doing so. Um, automatism is the basically putting up a defense that you didn't necessarily have a guilty mind. It's usually used in an insanity plea. Um, what this uh, court recently uh, changed their legislator to is that you can now use extreme intoxication as a defense of automatism. Um, I want to be clear that it doesn't mean you can say, hey, I was really uh, drunk or intoxicated, so I, I have no... I have no responsibility in the matter, um, but it just means that you can try and use it as a defense. Um, and I think it connects to what we were talking about also in terms of public reaction. So this uh, decision happened in uh, summer of 2022, which just followed the Roe v. Wade overturning in America. And um, kind of in the social media that I was around, a lot of people are saying, this is our Roe v. Wade. This is our, you know, um, five steps back for female rights because obviously when we're talking about violent crimes um, you think about sexual assault especially this question of alcohol um, and consent and whether it can excuse those violent crimes um, but I think people jumped to conclusions about that I think that's my kind of intro maybe we can start ta to talk about it but I think people really jumped to conclusions without necessarily understanding First of all, I, uh, I know who I'm getting back on the podcast. Hannah, who <laughs> says that I'm a, a PM queen versus the girl <laughs> who wants to punch me. Right. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think this was really interesting because, as you say, I think on the surface, my immediate reaction was, uh, like, this is ridiculous because often the nature of the crimes involved when people are in this intoxicated state, which, as you say, is more of, a, like, a psychosis than just being drunk. Uh, just awful. I, I read a few cases where this um, defense of automatism had been used and there was a case of um, a man sexually assaulting an elderly disabled woman. Uh, this was back in the 1990s, but that was the first mm -hmm. time that it was used as a defense. Uh, but more recently in the last few years, a man who violently injured his mother with a knife. I mean, just all horrible, horrible crimes. And as you say, very often the victims of the crimes are women and the perpetrators are predominantly men. Um, but it is more nuanced than that. And, you know, there has been a lot of people, men and women, you know, who are much more well-versed in the law than I am, who claim that this is a very difficult defence to use mm -hmm. and it relies on so much data and, um, you know, evidence of witness statements, the evidence of medical professionals, police officers, who can corroborate that somebody was in such a state that they could just be completely incapacitated. Yeah, completely. Um, yeah, I think the one case that I read about was the man in British Columbia who was found not guilty for stabbing his wife, which I had a strong reaction to initially. Um, but it was then, as I read further, he had taken um, a combination of prescription medication, which had been deemed dangerous, but nonetheless, a medical professional had prescribed to him um 
and ultimately I could kind of see where the judges were then um, coming from. So yeah, it's definitely not just a case of you get a bit drunk and then you're excused for whatever you do. Um, but I am slightly worried about kind of the incentives that this creates. Um, even though there is like a high burden of proof, will people who intend on committing a crime just, you know, take loads of drugs and then proceed um, with the crime? Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a hard uh, thing to talk about, especially because the stories that you read and the actual cases are just horrifying. So it's really hard to, you know, step back and try and think about it just through a legal mind. Um, and there's questions as to whether we should do that. Um, I think there, there is something in the, I think in that case that you just brought up that would still have the um, guilty mind, that um, kind of mens rea, just because you did have the intent on committing it before you did um, anything. I also think that there's a, an interesting question of, are you criminally negligent in taking these substances? And are you criminally negligent in taking, uh, so all of the cases are combinations of alcohol and you know prescribed drugs or opiates. Um, are you negligent in doing that? Like you could have a dangerous reaction or a violent reaction. And so are you therefore, do you have a guilty mind for doing that or is negligent? Yeah, and I know that some people have argued that, you know, it is in a sense a voluntary act taking the, the drugs in the first place and that, you know, you're tacitly recognizing responsibility for any actions that you might take. Um, but I guess one way that we could look at this is whether maybe legislation just needs to be cracked down around these drugs and mm. substances in general and whether that's the more pressing issue here rather than you know i mean obviously you don't want anybody uh, under your legislation to be in the state where they're just completely incapacitated to control their own actions that's quite a scary state for anybody to be in and you know if we're to be able to avoid that that would obviously be preferable yeah and it's interesting that in the canadian context this comes around the legalization of lots of kind of class a drugs and I don't know whether this is maybe a response to that um, so that people who do have an unexpected reaction to these drugs which can have such unpredictable effects are not convicted um, for atrocities that they commit um, I don't know if this is a part like this is part of a wider trend of just kind of legalizing things in Canada yeah I mean that's a, a point that I had never thought of as you know drug laws kind of open up we do need to consider what the effects of them what the dangerous effects of that um, might be um, I don't necessarily have an answer but I think that's a really interesting point um, I also just want to talk about uh, it was really interesting the timing of it especially coming after um, Harvey Wade because again initially I think everybody had that same reaction of, of being like this is horrible um, without looking into it, so maybe we can also just talk about initial, like, shock, knee-jerk reactions of public and social media. Do you think that um, Roe v. Wade was similarly kind of something that people had a snap reaction to when it wasn't actually that? No, sorry, okay. sorry. Wow, um, so R.V. Brown, um, this case that I'm talking about, this Canadian context, it came after, so every I think everybody was still reeling from the R.V. Wade um, context. Um, saw this and thought it was just a backtracking of a lot of um, um, female pro uh, feminist progress that we've made. Yeah, and obviously, as you say, R.V. Wade, um, you know, rightly caused a massive 
media sensation seems like the wrong word, but I'm going to use it. <laughs> um, but I think in a way it was dangerous because it then it becomes very easy just to incorporate lots of causes under that same banner. And, you know, even just with the hashtagging system, you can see how it's very easy for people just to kind of ride the wave of something that really is, you know, shocking and devastating really to the progress of women in America um, and just broaden it out to issues that are maybe more nuanced. Uh, so definitely I think there is a danger there. Yeah, I think it took a little bit of potency away from the RV wave, right? Um, just kind of continuing this um, outrage, sensation, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> indignation maybe is the best word. I, I'm not sure. Indignation Continu sounds... Continuing good. that towards a more nuanced issue. Like I'd say RV wave was a way more cut and dry, black and white. Um, and continuing it on kind of diluted uh, the shocking nature of RV wave. And I think it is difficult, you know, we've been discussing legislation a lot this episode, and I think it does come down to such complex issues. You know, lawyers study for so long for a reason. They're highly respected for a reason. They have to have such a detailed, nuanced understanding of the rights of individual citizens, but also the rights of perpetrators. And balancing those is much more complex than I think some keyboard warriors might think. <laughs> well, I, and I guess I'd ask, is there a responsibility? Because we're talking about fairly inaccessible institutions, both the government um, and their legislative decisions, as well as judicial decisions. Um, that's inaccessible because you don't, it's a lot of reading. <laughs> it's a lot of dense reading. And so I wonder, it might be, um, if, if we can find some sort of channel to actually explain what um, the goals and, and what these new legislative and judicial decisions will look like, um, mm. both in the case of the spy tech firm and with this automatism. Yeah, idea. and I think it's difficult in both of those cases because I think they are so um, sort of ethically, morally charged, and it's very difficult to take a nonpartisan approach to either um, and explain it in a way that doesn't you know, take certain biases into account. Um, I don't know whether it comes down to individuals' responsibility just to educate themselves on these issues and come to their own conclusions. But I, yeah, I definitely agree that it seems in a way that almost legal jargon can be used as a way to sideline public opinion because people just aren't able to engage with issues at a level that maybe they should be able to. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening this week, and I hope those stories got you thinking. I felt that Sophia's story really drove home the limitations of closed-minded, knee-jerk reactions, which, of course, is what we're all about doing here at Discourse. A big thank you must go to my contributors this week, Hannah Shirley and Sophia Kalu. It was great to record our first all-female episode and challenge that centrist dad podcast stereotype. If any of you listeners are keen to get involved next semester, please do reach out to our email at podcast at thesaint.scot. That's it from us this semester. This episode was edited and produced by Natalie Olofsson and hosted by Rosie Miller.